But when I was a minister at St Peter's South Tamworth after I came out of college, uh, we had an annual tradition where we would pack up half the youth group in the September school holidays. Uh, we would load all of them into as many cars as we could find and we would travel three hours west uh, to the small town of Walgett where we would run a kids club. Uh, the week was always a huge amount of fun for everyone that came but the week would be especially fun for those in the group that had not experienced life out on the Western Plains before. I'm sure you can picture that uh, as these bright-eyed kind of Tamworth kids uh, ended up quite literally in the middle of nowhere uh, where there was a shop that was only open for a few hours every day. And just like we have many friends from the Pacific Islands here in Gaira, in Tamworth there's a huge population of South Koreans who would come to work at the local abattoir. And because of this, when I was at South Tamworth, we had a steady stream of ministry trainees from South Korea who would be trained for ministry and then uh, with the hope that we could send them back to South Korea uh, to be involved in ministry in their local church. But inevitably, uh, they would always help us connect uh, with the overseas workers in Tamworth uh, so that we could introduce them to Jesus as well. Well, as I'm sure you can understand, just for the kids from Tamworth, for these South Koreans, uh, the week in Walgett was always especially different for them because Tamworth is weird enough to them, let alone life out west. And one thing would always come up in particular uh, because once we would get out past the Narrabri, every year something very funny would happen because as the countryside flattened out, they would be amazed as we drove towards what they had convinced themselves was a vast inland sea. The one that the early explorers searched for hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Unfortunately, their hopes and dreams for a quick swim amid the increasingly hot landscape would be quickly dashed as we explained to them that it was a mirage. Because there's no inland sea and in western New South Wales, no matter how the pioneers searched for them, there is only the illusion of an inland sea. And this is the problem with mirages, isn't it? Because they promise so much. Our dear South Korean friends desperately wanted to swim as it got hotter and hotter as we travelled west. Uh, but mirages, they promise so much, don't they? But they never deliver on the promise. Uh, mirages are always a huge disappointment and actually an awful thing to base your life on, don't you think? Which is important for us to understand because in the passage we're going to look at today, uh, we're going to see that the world that we live in offers mirages to us every single day. As it tries to convince us to base our lives on a whole bunch of things, are things that will give us the kind of life that we might want for ourselves. And today we're going to see that when Jesus was on earth, just like us, he was also tempted by such mirages. 
Uh, Because after hearing about his family tree and his divine origins in the last few weeks, uh, today we come to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to see that uh, we're going to see what we should do to fight against the mirages that try to distract us from living for the true king, uh, Jesus, the king that we have met in the last couple of weeks. And this lesson comes out in the time that Jesus spent with the devil in the wilderness. And it's through the lies of the devil that we're going to become acquainted with three false gospels that the world tries to present to us every day. And they're fairly easy to remember because they're three Ps. They are the mirage of earthly provision, the mirage of divine protection, and the mirage of earthly prosperity. So let's have a look at Matthew 4 to see what it has to teach us. Where we see at the beginning of the passage that as a result of Jesus' spirit-directed ministry that we learnt about last week, we learn in verse 1 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The passage doesn't start off very well, does it, on face value. Why on earth does Jesus voluntarily make this move to be tested in the wilderness after his baptism by John in the Jordan River last week? Well, just as Matthew has previously shown us how Jesus' arrival has many connections to things that have happened in Israel's past, he's showing us this happening again. This is with the purpose of showing us that Jesus is actually very different to how the Israelites have acted in the past generations. And Matthew wants to show us who Jesus really is and why we should trust him and not ourselves. Well, just as Matthew has made those connections in the past, those connections come up again here in the chapter. Because there's been many times in Israel's past when they were tested in the wilderness... One of those times was in the time of the Exodus when God had rescued them from uh, from Egypt. Now, unfortunately for Israel, their time in the wilderness only exposed their failure to love God with all their heart. And so what happened was that they continually tried to do things on their own terms, uh, which meant that their time in the wilderness was extended and it also meant that during their time in the wilderness, they failed the test to trust God because they had turned their backs on God. Which means that with the news of Jesus moving into the wilderness to be tempted, what we're actually going to see is if he fares any better than they did all those years ago. And the comparison comes up immediately. Because one of the issues for the Israelites in the Exodus was that they were constantly hungry. That's one of the things that comes up in the story of the Exodus, which meant that they continually grumbled against God. Well, it's the issue of being hungry that comes up first in verse 2, where we hear that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, what do you expect? Jesus was hungry and you would be as well, wouldn't you? Now, I don't know what your experience is with temptation, but I always find that I'm always tempted the most when I am at my lowest points. 
and when my perceived needs are at their greatest. Well, it's interesting to note that this is not uncommon because it seems that Satan loves to tempt us when we are in one of those moments, when things are not going well and when I have my needs not being met. And the same is true for the Lord Jesus. Because in verse 3, when he's hungry, after fasting for 40 days, we read next that out of nowhere, who appeared? Satan appeared to offer Jesus some temptation. And the tempter's message is very simple, and it is this. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In this first scene, I find it amazing as I notice how effective Satan is with the words he uses. In verse 3, we hear that Satan speaks only 13 words, and in doing so, he does a whole number of things very, very effectively. Firstly, he casts doubt on what we learnt at the end of chapter 3, when Jesus is declared as being the Son of God. And then secondly, he tells him to prove that he really is God's son. He's effective, isn't he? Casting doubt on who Jesus is and then telling him to take matters into his own hands to prove it. And in the first bit of temptation, it's amazing as well to see that just as Matthew has already made the link back to Israel's time in the wilderness, Satan is doing it as well. Because in telling Jesus to provide himself bread in the wilderness, he's harking back to the time in Exodus chapter 16 when God sent manna from heaven to feed his grumbling people. Which means that Satan is essentially saying this. Come on, Jesus. The Israelites whinged in the past about being hungry in the wilderness and God just provided for them. If you just give in, you can provide yourself whatever you want. Which shows us that the first category of temptation that we hear of in this chapter regards the mirage of having all your earthly provisions provided. Now, in a culture that is increasingly looking to worldly possessions as the things that really give us meaning... This temptation that we hear of firstly in Matthew 4 is hugely applicable for us, isn't it? Because even if we are followers of Jesus, the air that we breathe all week tells us that what we really need over and above everything else is more and more of what we want. And as we think about things from Satan's perspective in terms of loving worldly possessions and loving God, what would Satan love to see us do? He wants us to turn our back on God and to get everything that our hearts desire. And this is what he is tempting Jesus with in the story. Jesus is hungry, he has physical needs, and the temptation is for Jesus to forget everything about God the Father, to just simply get whatever he wants. Well, thankfully for us, along with the three temptations that we hear in this story, Jesus gives us three really good models to follow as we fight the sinful temptations of the devil. Because what is Jesus' response to the temptation for guaranteed earthly provision? Well, look at verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In terms of the test, he gets a tick, doesn't he, at this point. Here Jesus shows us that while earthly food is important to keep our bodies running, it is not the thing that will provide for us into eternal life. Therefore, we cannot and must not idolise worldly possessions or even the accumulation of tasty treats. I don't know about you, but our cupboard at the moment is filled with chocolate from Easter. (laughs) We should not accumulate tasty treats for ourselves because what do we really need? We need God and his word. That's what we need which flips the worldly idea of our needs and our wants on its head, doesn't it? Because what we all actually need is to turn and trust that God's plan for our life is actually the best plan for our life. That his plan is better than anything that we can vision for ourselves. And so, in, and so encountering the temptation of Satan, Jesus shows us that God's word is what we need over and above everything else and that we need to trust in it. This means practically that if you say that you trust Jesus, just like Jesus is committed to God's word, you need to be committed to God's word as well, which I think will mean that you will need to be committed to doing at least four things. Firstly, you need to be committed to to be reading it for yourself. That's what commitment to God's word looks like, isn't it? Secondly, you need to be committed to coming to church where we think about it and are encouraged from it in fellowship with one another. Thirdly, you'll also value the teaching of God's word and pray that faithful teaching will be happening more and more in the world. With this, I have to be a little bit selfish at this point and ask you to please pray for me as I teach God's word every week that I will be faithful to what God tells us in his word, that I won't do what what so many other parts of the Anglican Church in our nation have done, where they have given in to the temptation to water down God's word and actually teach a different gospel entirely. Fourthly, if you trust in Jesus, it will mean that you also share the gospel of Jesus with your friends and your family. Because Jesus is so committed to God's word and why? Because it's only through hearing about God saving the world in his son, in his word, that people can be saved. But what we see in this first scene is Satan appearing. He tries to tempt Jesus with the mirage of worldly provision. Though in Jesus' answer, we see that food is important, but it is God's word that is most important. So read it for yourself. I can be committed to coming to church and reading it with other believers and pray that it will happen more and more. And then as we move on to the next section of the text in verses 5 to 7, we see Satan raise the stakes. Because if Jesus' hunger didn't make him give into temptation, then perhaps something else would. And so what you see is Satan now escalate things which sees him in verse 5 take Jesus to the top of the holy city, Jerusalem. The devil makes Jesus stand on the highest point of the magnificent temple and he says these words. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here again, we see Satan cast doubt on Jesus' divinity. And then we see also that one of the ways that Satan tries to deceive God's people is actually by using the Bible. That's why you need to pray for faithful Bible teaching and to be committed to supporting it. Because in this second temptation, we see Satan trying to offer Jesus the possibility of divine protection. And the problem here is that divine protection for God's saving king, that's who Jesus is. The problem here is that divine protection for God's saving king is actually a biblical idea. Because the part of the Bible that Satan recounts is Psalm 91, where God does promise that his saving king will be protected, which shows us that Satan loves to deceive God's people by twisting what God tells us in his word. And we see this happen all the time when churches go astray, because so much false teaching about God that exists in the world actually comes from a misteaching and the misapplying of what God tells us in the scriptures. And when preachers like myself take things too far, when we actually say far more than what God tells us, that is the devil's plan for deceiving God's church. Now, this takes many forms in the church today. We see it in the continual watering down of the imperatives for what the Christian life should look like. Although I think the clearest way of explaining it to you would be the way that so many preachers today take all of God's promises for his future kingdom and say that we should expect them here and now. Just as God promises us life in a perfect heaven after his son returns to take us home, that we should expect that earthly that reality here on earth now. Now, this kind of teaching is so dangerous because what does it do? It takes our eyes off the perfect heaven that God has promised for us in the future and it makes us expect it here on earth. Friends, I've had so many friends that have been lured into this kind of thinking. And what do you think what happens when the tough times come for the people that are expecting the good life now? Well, the reality is that they often think that God has abandoned them or that he hates them. And in doing so, then they walk away from God because they think in their hearts that he is not good and he is not loving, but he is evil and vindictive. When all that has happened is that they have been taught badly about what to expect from God in this life. Pray for faithful Bible teaching to be happening. Well, the exact same thing happens here. Uh, just as those people today expect the good life now and, not, and they're not looking forward to the good life to come, uh, the exact same thing is happening here with Satan and Jesus in the holy city. Uh, God has promised that his king will last forever. Uh, God has promised that the kingdom of this king will last forever. 
But in the point in the story of Jesus' ministry, that time is not now. At chapter 4 is not when that will happen. Jesus needs to die, be raised to life, he needs to ascend to heaven and then return to earth in the future. That will be the point when God's eternal kingdom is inaugurated. Uh, It will come in the future when Jesus returns at the day of judgment. But Satan tempts Jesus and twists God's word and tells him to instead command the angels of heaven here and now for his own benefit. Well, thankfully, once again, Jesus wouldn't have a bar of it. Tick again. And just as he quoted Deuteronomy 8 previously, Jesus now turns to Deuteronomy 6 in order to put Satan in his place. And he says this in verse 7. It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Just as Satan tempts Jesus to take up God's promise of divine protection Jesus declares that God the Father should not be tested. Which is a remarkable statement of God's Son, saying that he is willing to be subject to the will of the Father in all things. This means that he is unwilling to command the stones to turn into bread, providing him relief from his hunger. And it also means that he is unwilling to command the angels of heaven to save him from a death, that lies outside the will of the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but compared to the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus seems to be doing pretty well so far, don't you think? And it's in noticing this that we see that Satan saves his best till last. Because if being hungry in the wilderness didn't work, and if standing on top of the temple in Jerusalem did not work, then what on earth do you think that the devil's going to have to try next to show Jesus and to tempt him? Well, in this, we see that the devil would have to show Jesus something much grander in order to try and get his attention, which means that in the increasing size of Satan's tempting mirages, we see in verse 8 that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give to you, he said. It's a pretty good offer, isn't it? Now, I have not stood on the tops of many mountains. Though one thing I love to do whenever I go to the snow is that I ride a chairlift up to the very highest point of the ski resort and then I just spend some time sitting and watching. Now, the thing I'm always amazed by is how much you can see when you are high up in the mountains. Though I have to say, the view from the top of Perisha is nothing compared to the view that Jesus saw on that day. Because we're told that upon being taken to the top of the mountain by Satan, they were able to see all the kingdoms of the world. It would have been an impressive sight. Much better than being able to vaguely see Canberra in the distance. Uh, what they saw was the all of the kingdoms of the world. And think about what would have been going on for Jesus at that point. Because for the saving king who came to earth to die for a rebellious and sinful humanity, the temptation for Jesus to take the world through another path 
would have been a mighty temptation for him, don't you think? Jesus even prays in the garden at the end of his earthly life, asking God that maybe there may be some other way that his plan can be worked out. Though to do so would have been disastrous because the price for such an exaltation would have given the devil exactly what he wanted. Because the price was this in verse 9. If you will bow down and worship me. And when it comes to Satan, I often think that he is equal parts genius and a complete and utter lunatic. And here in the final scene of this story, we see this taking place. He offers Jesus the whole world genius. Though Jesus will need to bow down and worship the deceiver in order to take hold of it. Which, friends, is a little snapshot into the battle that every single one of us faces every day. Because every morning when we wake up, we are faced with the decision of who we are going to worship. Are you going to worship God in the way that you live your life? Or are you going to worship the deceiver with the way that you live your life? Are there the two options? And that's the question for Jesus. Uh, Is he going to take the kingdom? Is he going to take the world and all that is offered to him by Satan? After all, all he has to pay is an allegiance to the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, thankfully, we see that very different to Israel in the wilderness and very different to Adam and Eve, the answer for Jesus was an emphatic no. Jesus' answer is actually, get lost. Because he replies to this final tempting mirage by quoting Deuteronomy 6 and 1 Samuel 7, and he says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here we see that when it comes to where our allegiance lies, there is only one sure foundation that will offer you a happy and prosperous future. It's not to be found in the alluring mirages of the world, mirages that offer us earthly provision of all our wants, divine protection here on earth, and even earthly prosperity. In Jesus, we see the perfect example of what it means to turn your back on all of those things in order to receive everything by turning towards your heavenly father. Which is important to note as we conclude, because as the story ends, uh, we read these words in verse 11. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Friends, we live in a world full of mirages that seek to draw our attention away from what really matters in life. Salvation when our Lord Jesus returns. So what is the solution for living in a world full of mirages? Well, notice what drove the devil away. It was the word of our Lord. He can't stand it. And so if you want to live a life focused on salvation when the Lord Jesus returns, then you need to live your life orientated towards him 
Because one thing that you pick up as you continue in the Gospels is that Satan hates it when we love God and his word. He hates it. He cannot stand it. And I don't know about you, but trying to live your life, trying to anger Satan sounds like a pretty fun way to live, don't you think? (laughs) Well, from our passage today, living like this will mean that you will do... uh, will mean that you do three things. Uh, If you want to live a life that makes Satan so frustrated with you that he wants to leave you alone, you'll do these three things. You will devote yourself to God's word. Uh, You will read God's word for yourself. You will make it a priority to get uh, together with other believers to think about it and to be encouraged. You'll also value the teaching of God's word and you will tell others about what Jesus has done for them. Secondly, you'll live the way God wants you to live. You will not live putting the Lord your God to the test, which will mean that you will run away from sin. Do not try and test and push his patience. Thirdly, you'll not worship yourself or the mirages of this world. Instead, you'll worship God and him alone. Friends, from the reaction of the devil, we can see that living life like this is the only solution for living in a world full of mirages that seek to take our attention away from the salvation that we will receive when the Lord Jesus returns. Mirages look so promising, don't they? But just like our South Korean friends... Then, when they learnt the crushing reality, uh, they ultimately do not provide us with what we need. Because a mirage is not an expression of what is true and real in the world. And so what do you do when you are tempted by the mirages of this life? Well, you turn to God's word. You turn and live the way that he wants you to live, which you find out about when you read his word. And you worship God and you will serve him all the days of his life. And serving God instead of a mirage is a far better way to live. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is a word that brings life and health and safety for your people. Not safety on this earth necessarily, but Safety in the life to come, absolutely. Father, we live in a world with so many temptations and it is so easy just to breathe in the prevailing culture around us and live the way that it wants us to live. Help us to devote ourselves to your word. Help us to live the way you want us to live and help us to worship you and not ourselves. Amen.